Welcome, everybody, to episode 37 of Generation Jihad. I'm Tom Johnson, and I'm joined again this week by Bill Rojo. Bill? Hello, everyone. We are, of course, senior fellows at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. And this week, we're pleased to be joined by another senior fellow at FDD, Emanuele Otolenghi. We call him the great EO. Uh, we are very pleased to have him this week. Um, Emanuele is, a, is really a specialist on Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which he's done a ton of work on that through the years. And he has uh, just written extensively about what Iran is doing in Latin America and elsewhere. He does a sort of granular, detailed analysis and tracking of Iran, Iranian proxies, and the IRGC that we certainly appreciate. Um, I know I can honestly say this, that, you know, sometimes we have colleagues who, you know, we appreciate their work and we like what they do. But, you know, I may not be uh, such a big fan of it overall in terms of, of what they do. I could say I'm legitimately a fan of EO's work. I've been following it for years. He's somebody who I'd want to have on this show, regardless of whether or not I, I technically worked with him or not. So, uh, Manuel, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, and thank you for your kind introduction. Uh, we're pleased to have you. Um, so let's let's do a little bit of your background first. I always like to do this to sort of touch base with, you know, sort of where you're from, how you got into this, that sort of thing. You know, everybody on the podcast, our listeners know that I'm pretty blunt. So I try and but I try and give people some background about, you know, sort of where they're coming from first before we get into the nerdy details. So where are you from? Well, I'm originally from Italy, um, a country that uh, has a, a long history of, uh, of um, going behind the authorities back. <laughs> so uh, I, I guess I'm familiar um, just out of my personal experience with watching, you know, corru corruption and, uh, uh, you know, a, a good deal of black economy and, uh, you know, growing up, of course, we had the twin, the twin uh, uh, terrible phenomena of homegrown terrorism uh, plaguing our political system and, uh, and the mafia, of course, which... Uh, moved up uh, from, from being a, you know, a territorially concentrated uh, uh, parallel system of authority involved in, in all sorts of, uh, of crime, but, but mostly racketeering. And then as, as we move into the late 70s, 80s, it started becoming increasingly involved in, uh, in uh, traffics that today are, are global, such as, such as drugs, weapons, uh, human trafficking, you name it, whatever made money, and then expanded out of their areas uh, to invest globally into anything that could serve uh, for money laundering purposes. So that, that was a phenomenon that, uh, you know, as a phenomenon that is, as somebody growing up in Italy um, was, was very much present uh, on, in our mind uh, and, and in our awareness. Uh, but um, from a professional point of view, I, I got to the IRGC, to Iran, and, and eventually also to Hezbollah through through different ways. Uh, I um, I started working uh, in 2006 for a small think tank in Brussels, uh, the capital of the EU and NATO, um, and uh, um, the brief was uh, transatlantic relations. Um, and of course, a huge component of that at the time was was negotiations with Iran through the P5 plus one mechanism, or as the Europeans like to call it, the EU three plus three. And of course, Europe at the time was um, the, the largest uh, trading partner of the Islamic uh, Republic of Iran. And therefore it 
because of its economic relations, it, it potentially held the biggest leverage uh, when it came to pressuring uh, the, the regime into concessions over its, uh, its nuclear program. And so uh, starting in, in late 2006, early 2007, I engaged in research uh, uh, to look at the economic relation between the EU bloc and, uh, and Iran. And what, what quickly emerged as, uh, as fairly, you know, fairly open, uh, uh, you know, for all to see was that Iran was running significant illicit procurement operations uh, in, in the, all over the European uh, Union. Often, you know, building uh, cross-jurisdictional opaque structures of front companies that then linked up to um, other structures in, in trading, other trading partners of the EU, such as Turkey, um, the South Caucasus, uh, um, and, and use these, uh, these uh, shell structures to launder money and also to buy technology that it needed for its nuclear program, but could not obviously obtain uh, legally, that it could only obtain fraudulently. So between 2006 and 2010, I increasingly focused on, on, on this dossier, looking both at the legislative and regulatory side of it, uh, what you know, the Europeans could do to build a, a, a sanctions architecture, but also to look at how the Iranians were, were um, bypassing that growing structure that began tentatively uh, in, in 2008 with the passing of the first sanctions, uh, you know, following a, a round of UN Security Council resolutions and then developed all the way into uh, 2010 uh, European uh, autonomous sanctions uh, coordinated with the US uh, building on UN resolution 1929 and then sort of expanded all the way to, to 2013, 2014, when of course, with the onset of negotiations uh, um, over what eventually became the, the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, uh, you know, began, began receding. And, and you know, that, that experience of several years researching Iranian networks taught me a lot about what the Iranians were doing, uh, building shell companies, uh, spreading uh, their networks uh, in multiple jurisdictions, using offshore jurisdictions, uh, buying passports of convenience for their executives so that they could, uh, you know, avoid uh, stringent scrutiny and so on. And in 2015, as uh, you know, the final touches were being put to the JCPOA, by then I had joined FDD. I, I joined in 2010 and continued to work on, on these briefs uh, for several years. Um, in 2015, uh, at FTD, we decided that it was worth looking at what Iran was doing in Latin America as well. Not that Latin America seemed to be the, um, the primary focus of uh, nuclear technology procurement. Obviously, uh, there were other markets uh, where the Iranians were, were going to be a lot more active uh, uh, in that field. But clearly, uh, you know, the Iranians had been trying to get their foot into Latin America for a long time. Uh, by 2015, you had, of course, uh, over a decade uh, and a half of uh, 
of Chavismo in Venezuela with strong and, and ever-expanding links between the regime in Venezuela and, uh, and Iran. Uh, some of the U.S. Uh, sanctions actually targeted Iranian operations in Venezuela proper. We knew of, uh, of Iran's nefarious activities uh, up and down the Western Hemisphere, uh, you know, the, the tragic uh, events of uh, the terror attack against the Israeli embassy in Buenos Aires in 92, the AMIA bombing in 94. Um, uh, you know, there was a the downing of a plane in Panama uh, on uh, in 94 as well, which eventually, as it emerged, was also linked to uh, Iranian terror activity. So we knew that there was a lot going on there. And because at the time also we were interested in expanding our research on Hezbollah, we threw Hezbollah in. And clearly Hezbollah has been uh, extremely active in Latin America as elsewhere, as you know. Uh, Hezbollah has been using uh, and abusing um, Shia expatriate communities for years uh, uh, on a global scale. You have such communities uh, peppered uh, pretty much in every continent, uh, spread around small communities, but cohesive ones, uh, maintaining strong ties with, with the homeland. You have clan-based structures of large families with members both in Lebanon and across the globe in these communities. And Hezbollah clearly was tapping into these networks um, to raise funds um, and uh, eventually, as it became clear also, to, to money launder proceeds from criminal activities of, of organized crime with which Hezbollah increasingly cooperates uh, as a way to raise uh, revenue uh, that complements what Iran is giving them directly. So that's, it's a, it's a long answer to your question, but I think it, it captures basically how from, from uh, a happy and privileged childhood in a troubled country in the Mediterranean, I ended up uh, spending a lot of time watching uh, what happens in Latin America, which is in many ways a place that reminds me uh, of my 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 days living uh, in a Mediterranean country, Emanuele, uh, thank you for joining us. And uh, you know, I also joined FDD in 2010, 2010 as a decade ago. So we are we are veterans uh, now. Uh, one quick question: You mentioned uh, Hezbollah's role in the drug trade. Um, can you tell us a little bit how the U.S. discovered Hezbollah's? Uh, um, role in in the drug trade in South America and how extensive is it? Like you know, basically, what are, what yeah. are we looking at here for a network in terms of how extensive this is? Yeah. How, how much money they're bringing in too? I know, I realize we just hit you with three questions there, but we'll we'll get you if you miss. They're one. all they're all uh, interconnected. So yeah. let's start with the with the way they discovered uh, this extensive uh, 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 role that Hezbollah has uh, in the drug trade. Um, uh, as you know. Cocaine, the, the main, uh, the main, uh, uh, the, 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 the most important uh, uh, drug uh, produced uh, uh, in Latin America, um, um, you know, is is uh, is is a multi-billion-dollar global uh, industry today, and ninety percent of cocaine is uh, or the, the coca um, leave. Uh, which is the basis for for the uh, for the drug um, grows uh, on the Andean plateau. So it grows basically 
in uh, Bolivia, Peru, Ecuador, Colombia, and to a smaller extent, uh, Venezuela. Colombia uh, historically has been the main, main producer of, of cocaine, and a lot of the cocaine production and export uh, from Colombia is intertwined, of course, with the uh, decades-long uh, civil war in that country between the government and the FARC uh, leftist uh, guerrillas, which have ties to, to Chavez and Chavismo, uh, and increasingly it seems also connections uh, with Hezbollah and the, and the Iranians. They are obviously part of the kind of anti-imperialist uh, leftist front that uh, have beset uh, uh, Latin American politics and, and bloodied uh, the, the history of this country. So Colombia was a main ground of the, what was then the war on drugs, uh, which the you know, successive US administrations fought alongside Latin American allies against the cartels. And so the Colombians were involved in extensive investigations, uh, wiretapping, um, on, on local cartels. And uh, in the process of conducting wiretapping uh, on, on cell phones uh, associated with local cartels, the Colombians picked up hundreds of hours of conversations in Arabic. And of course, you know, that, that was something they did not expect. They did not know what to do with it. They didn't have the, the capacity to understand what was going on and whether it was relevant. So they asked DEA, uh, the, the, the Drug Enforcement Administration, uh, U.S. law enforcement agency focused uh, on the combat of, uh, of narcotics, uh, to come in and help. The DEA obliged um, the request, sent uh, an analyst uh, who sat down and, and listened to these hundreds of, of hours of, of conversation. And, and what was revealed from those wiretaps was mind-boggling because Clearly, uh, there were Lebanese business people uh, talking to the cartels, discussing extensively the movement of bulk shipments, multi-ton bulk shipments of cocaine to Europe, to the United States, and how to launder the proceeds back to Colombia. So the U.S. started investigating uh, these networks, and in the in the decade that followed, uh, under what eventually became known as Project Cassandra, a sort of a multi-agency uh, led uh, task force led by, by DEA looking into money laundering, drug trafficking networks in Latin America. Um, what emerges that Hezbollah was in, involved extensively uh, with multiple organized uh, crime syndicates. Um, first of all, laundering the money, but also increasingly taking part actively taking part directly in the trade of cocaine. Now, your question, how much money is that? Now, as you probably know, official figures put out by multiple US government sources, Israeli government sources, indicate that currently Hezbollah's budget is around $1 billion a year. And the assessment is that approximately 700 millions uh, of that come from Iran which suggests that at the very least $300 million a year coming to Hezbollah's coffer from a multiplicity of independent sources, which include fundraising through charities and donations from the communities, but also increasingly organized crime. So 
the official figures tell us that at least about 30% of that budget is, is raised through uh, interfacing with criminal organizations. In my humble view, it's a lot more. Um, and, and the reason I say that is, again, based on the, the small window that Project Cassandra opened uh, onto this phenomenon, we see that the handful of networks that were investigated, prosecuted, and seemingly disrupted were laundering hundreds of millions of dollars a month. Uh, the, the one that everybody more or less knows about um, managed by uh, a Hezbollah facilitator named Ayman Juma, who's a Lebanese uh, with Colombian citizenship who was operating out of Colombia at the time of the indictments and investigations in 2011-2012, was at its peak laundering $200 million a month for both Colombian and Mexican cartels. Now, if that is one network, albeit one of the biggest ones, and that network alone was laundering 200 millions a month, we know from the investigations that Hezbollah typically gets anywhere between seven, eight percent to 15 percent commission. You know, it's easy to do the math and see that uh, just one network was yielding anywhere between, you know, four and five hundred million dollars a year of revenue. Now, not all of that goes to Hezbollah, of course. A lot of it stays with the people involved. They need to pay bribes. They need to, you know, they have overhead costs in running the entire operation. But even after you skim that out of the figure, it's still a lot of money that goes back to Hezbollah. And that was one network. Another network uh, targeted and dismantled in Europe in 2016 uh, under something called Operation Cedar, which was done in conjunction with European, uh, a number of European agencies. That network was yielding about 40 million euro a month uh, for Hezbollah that was going directly to purchase weapons for Hezbollah's involvement in Syria. So when you look at all of this, you see one significant revenue that comes not from Iran's largesse, which is not always entirely reliable, especially when Iran by sanctions. Two, you see a very, very well-oiled uh, structure global interface between organized crime and terror finance. Um, and three, um, you see that it permeates the Shia business communities abroad uh, and it relies on uh, a whole ancillary structure of activities that Hezbollah engages in to ensure that significant chunks of these communities remain loyal. So. Hezbollah is not just tapping into the business communities and getting a handful of people to participate. It is also ensuring that the communities as a whole remain loyal and committed. And how does it do that? It puts some of this money into mosques, cultural centers, uh, youth movements, charitable uh, activities. So as time goes by, despite the distance, uh, and the generational change, these communities remain committed to the cause. So whatever happened to Project Cassandra and sort of related efforts and, and where does that all stand today? Well, so... And maybe give a, another a, another brief, brief background on what exactly it was. Give right, so basically involved the pooling together of multiple government agencies 
to be able to to leverage uh, intelligence that was not necessarily always being made available to law enforcement, uh, so that this very complicated interface uh, between crime and terror could be fully uh, understood, investigated, and exposed. And the cooperation between the agencies and the pooling together of resources allowed DEA to uh, conduct multiple successful investigations and indictments, including arrests and extraditions, uh, going after multiple networks and, and key facilitators of Hezbollah around the globe. Of course, because cocaine is mostly coming out of Latin America, a significant amount of work and time was devoted to going after these networks in Latin America. But we know that um, because of the family connections, because of the way that the dope moves, um, these investigations also touched on um, financial operations in Lebanon, obviously, but also in West Africa. I mean, the one of the, the things that was discovered in the process of investigating Juma and his network was that a significant part of the cocaine money was being used to buy used cars in the United States, ship them over to West Africa, where there is a thriving market for used uh, automobiles. And then the profit, sales and the profit was being wired back to Lebanon and through Lebanon cutouts, both banks and money exchanges was going back eventually to the Colombian cartels minus the commission. So clearly what we learned from that project and, and those investigations was the, the extent, uh, the sophistication, the, the global footprint uh, of this operation um, that, that Hezbollah was involved in. Now, something of course happened along the way, and that was that the Obama administration starting in 2012 with uh, secret uh, channel uh, diplomacy through Oman, reached out to the Iranian regime the Iranian regime was hurting uh, significantly from sanctions, and the Obama administration thought that that was, uh, you know, it was enough to get them to the negotiating table. They were right, uh, but we know how the negotiations ended with, with a less than optimal deal, uh, which actually allowed the Islamic Republic to keep its uh, nuclear infrastructure intact um, and and regain access to financial markets. Uh, frozen assets uh, and 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 basically uh, not reform itself uh, uh, as a way to address the the the, the, the multiple concerns uh, uh, in the region and beyond that that Iran poses. Uh, um, and and as part of that negotiation, of course, several pressure points that existed up to that moment. Um, relieved and and one of them was of course uh all of these investigations the obama administration continued to focus on hezbollah's sort of more proper terror activities and you know if you go back to those years you see that they continue to to sanction occasionally uh hezbollah figures but these investigations that were more uh in the field of organized crime money laundering so white collar crime and drug trafficking, where the connection with Hezbollah was sometimes a little more blurred because the people involved were not necessarily um, Hezbollah militia members, fighters, party uh, stalwarts. They were sympathizers, supporters, 
Um, so the Obama administration basically put a stop on, on these investigations, slowed them down, uh, deprioritized these activities, and eventually these investigations kind of came uh, to a grinding halt uh, uh, after uh, Operation Cedar in January 2016. And, and I think that even as the Trump administration came in and decided to revisit this whole issue after the Obama administration decision to basically shut down Project Cassandra was exposed uh, in a political lengthy essay in December 2017, um, it was hard to put back the pieces uh, and, and to give the DEA, which had been sort of the, the leading agency in this effort, uh, to put them back into the driving seat, to bring back the people who had left with their institutional memory and knowledge of these complex operations. And so I think that the, the, the long-term impact of that fateful decision under the Obama administration to slow down things or bring them to, to a complete halt has, has kind of uh, uh, had long-lasting effects. Uh, and we see it in the last four years, despite the decision by the Trump administration to revive the project, uh, to try to understand what happened, to create a task force uh, uh, to look into Hezbollah's terror finance in Latin America, to designate uh, Hezbollah as a uh, transnational criminal organization in addition to being a terror organization. All of these things have helped, but the pace uh, and an impact of investigations um, has not returned to the pre-JCPOA uh, levels. Is there any indication that the cartels were aware that they were dealing with and uh, supporting Hezbollah in in uh, conducting operations with them, or you know, trafficking drugs with them? I'm just wondering if that was a, you know, something they were conscious of, or they just thought they were dealing with some random. You know, I I, I haven't seen any evidence of of internal discussions, uh, uh, even sort of you know. Clearly, a lot of the material that may be relevant to answering your question may not be public. Right. But I think that when you look at how cartels have operated traditionally and organized crime globally in general, they are not particularly um, interested in the politics of those they work with. Uh, and again, sort of, you know, one of the one of the largest cartels or organized crime syndicates that works with that, that that is active in the import of cocaine from Latin America into Europe in the distribution uh, uh, in southern European markets um, is the Calabrese Mafia, the Andrangheta. Now why would the Andrangheta work with Hezbollah? Uh, seem, seems like a, a bizarre combination but the fact of the matter is they work uh, with um, you know, Balkan criminal organizations uh, to run uh, uh, weapon smuggling networks. They worked with the Albanian mafia for smuggling of cigarettes and marijuana. They they don't really care. Um, that has been the modus operandi uh, of organized crime for a long time now. And also, the other thing is this. Organized crime tends to be territorially um, based. Right, you have the Italian mafia, you have 
the PCC in Brazil, you have the Mexican cartels, and of course they oftentimes clash and vie for influence uh, over you know, adjacent territories. But when they need to go global, they think globally like a corporation. And so it's oftentimes cheaper, uh, much more cost-effective to partner up with others uh, who have the infrastructure in distant market rather than try to send their own and establish a foothold. And so Hezbollah has this advantage for all organized crime globally. They have a presence pretty much everywhere you go. Do you want money laundering networks in Latin America? They are there already. Do you want uh, uh, um, people to manage transit uh, and logistics uh, in, in West Africa? They're there. Do you want a distribution network in Europe? They're there. Do you want a presence in, in North America, in Canada, in the US? They're here. Um, do you want uh, businessmen to manage the purchase of merchandise for trade-based money laundering operation in mainland China and Southeast Asia? They're there. Do you want uh, contacts in Australia to launch a distribution in what is probably the most lucrative market for cocaine currently in, in Oceania? They're there. So you don't need to send your own. They're, they're you know, very ecumenical themselves in who they work with. Uh, Hezbollah doesn't care to draft Christians, Druze, Sunnis, even Jews uh, to, to these operations. And so they all gain from it. So um, black cocaine, what can you tell us about that? You recently wrote a piece on that. It's fascinating. Yes, it, it is a fascinating story. And it, it made me uh, r- drastically revise my approach to barbecuing. Uh, in yeah, the process. Exactly. <laughs> so as you know, uh, you know, cocaine being illicit requires uh, the cartels to invent and the, the organized crime syndicates to always invent ingenious ways to disguise uh, the merchandise they ship. And, uh, you know, in my five years in Latin America, I've seen uh, contraband and illicit uh, uh, products such as cocaine, marijuana, uh, illicit cigarettes, you name it, hidden in, in, in any, anything you can imagine from, from dig- digging the, uh, you know, hollowing the trunk of trees uh, to hiding it in under fruits such as bananas, to making fake pineapples, to making fake avocados, dolls, toys, you name it, whatever can be used. Now in, in, in recent in the in the past decade, um, the cartels have figured out uh, a way to process cocaine to make it look like uh, charcoal briquettes. Now why charcoal? Because Latin America sadly, is one of the largest exporters of charcoal around the world. It is contributing to the very fast deforestation of the two largest um, green lungs in Latin America, the Amazon forest and the, and the Chaco in, in the Paraguay, Bolivia, Argentina area. Now, charcoal, you know, we use it to grill uh, uh, our barbecues uh, on 4th of July, we use it to, uh, um, um, it's used extensively uh, in restaurants around the world for grilling, for, for cooking. It is also used for fuel in some developing countries, especially in Africa. So there is an enormous amount of movement of this merchandise. And they use it to disguise uh, cocaine. And uh, what's interesting is that it is increasingly becoming uh, 
one of the disguises of choice. There was just uh, uh, three months ago uh, a seizure of over three tons of cocaine hidden in containers of charcoal uh, in Paraguay that was being shipped over to Europe. So clearly uh, they're onto something. And uh, one of the problems I'm told with this disguise is that uh, sniffer dogs don't always catch it. The, 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 the smell of charcoal is, is overwhelming them. And so it is a good disguise. And, uh, and again, it, uh, as when you look at it, whether it is from the crime perspective or the environment perspective, the ripple effect of these activities is is dramatic and goes in all sorts of directions. Not to make light of it, but boy, uh, you can really uh, run the risk of freebasing while you're barbecuing, I guess. So, yeah. But um, the the tri border uh, yes. area, um, tell us about that. It's a, why why is it a key area for Hezbollah to to for its finances, etc. Tell, tell right. Us so that. so. As much as Colombia is key for the export or the production and export of cocaine, the tri-border is, is essential for money laundering purposes. Uh, um, it is an area that was traditionally fairly lawless. It is, uh, uh, you know, the conjunction uh, or the meeting point of three countries uh, at a T-junction of two major rivers in Latin America, Argentina, Brazil, and Paraguay fairly remote uh, area in the periphery of all three countries. So traditionally was an area of smuggling uh, well before it became uh, developed, um, but it enjoyed a significant development push um, through basically two significant infrastructure projects in the 60s through the 80s, namely the building of bridges that connected the three countries uh, uh, over you know, the two rivers so one bridge between Brazil and Paraguay, one between Par uh, Brazil and Argentina. But also more importantly, the building of uh, the, uh, the, what is called the Itaipu Dam on the Paraná River, just north of the, the tri-border, uh, about a mile north. The Itaipu Dam is the second largest hydroelectric project in the world, uh, second only to the Three Gorges Dam in China. Uh, it is the first in the world in electricity production. Uh, it accounts for all of the electricity consumption of Paraguay, and the Paraguayans are actually selling back a lot of that energy to Brazil. Um, it created a vast artificial lake that separates Brazil and Paraguay with about uh, a thousand miles of, of coast coastline in a very rugged uh, rural area. And so it's, it's, uh, it's smuggling paradise. And it is um, an area that, thanks to these two large projects, has developed economically in, in very significant ways. It is also a tourist attraction because just east of the dam on the Iguazu River, the smaller of the two, you have one of the greatest wonders of nature, the Iguazu Falls, which are, again, the second largest waterfalls in the world after the Victoria Falls in in Africa. They're bigger than Niagara Falls, just to put them in, into the right context. So that draws an enormous amount of tourists coming in uh, from all parts of the world. It generates revenue. It has created a service industry. And so the bureaucracy that runs the dam and the technicians, the military presence, uh, because it's a border area, 
the falls with tourism, they all have conjured up a significant economy. Today is a metropolitan area of about a million people um, with uh, more than 5 million people a year transiting through the airports for tourist purposes, for tourism purposes. And since 1984, the Paraguayans created a free trade zone on their side. So when you cross into Paraguay, you can buy any brand you can think of, both authentic and fake, for a fraction of its, its market price elsewhere in, in the world. And because you have contraband and loose controls at the border, people can go in, buy for cheap, bring it back to their countries and sell it. So that has created a, an ideal uh, place for money laundering. Now, why is it important for Hezbollah? Because when, uh, during the um, 1980s, 1970s, 1980s, as the then dictator of Paraguay, the late uh, Alfredo Stroessner, uh, who was basically a clerical fascist uh, uh, Latin American caudillo uh, with a preference for children uh, underage uh, as a pastime, uh, wanted to develop the economy, he invited uh, immigration into the country. He invited Mennonites to go into the rural areas of Paraguay and build large farms. And he invited the Lebanese to come in. Now, in the 1970s, 1980, Lebanon, of course, was experiencing civil war uh, and which then sort of uh, snowballed into the war between the PLO and Israel in 1982. And so that created uh, a strong incentive for a lot of Lebanese, including Shia, to move to the tri-border and basically um, blend into that uh, exploding economy. And that's what they did. They came they, they contributed enormously to the development of the free trade zone on the Paraguayan side. Uh, they became established. They created their own institutions, mosques, schools, youth movements. They maintained a connection to the country. And of course, as Hezbollah became a key player in Lebanon, they saw that community and the economic potential of the, the area and decided to leverage it. And so today, all of the institutions linked to the Shia community in the area are tied either to Hezbollah or to the Amal party, the other Shia uh, political party that has become increasingly almost a satellite of Hezbollah. And because of the characteristics I described of, of the economic characteristics, that has become a critical nodal point in the money laundering operation. Now, increasingly also, Paraguay is becoming a transit point for cocaine not just because Bolivia and Peru as producers uh, of cocaine that will move east uh, all the way to the Atlantic ports in Brazil and then on to Europe, view Paraguay as a transit point, but also because increasingly the Colombian cartels view Paraguay as a service industry for their activities. So a lot of cocaine that would traditionally go out of Colombia uh, straight on to shipments uh, in the Atlantic or would go to Venezuela as a transit point uh, is moving south to Paraguay first. Why is that? Well, because Brazil is increasing their consumer, but also because increasingly is a transit point. And so Paraguay has become important, not just because of the money laundering, but now for, for that traffic too. And Hezbollah is at, at the center of all of this. And the uh, Lebanese government, have, how have they covered for Hezbollah's activities? Uh, 
in the tri-border region. There was an arrest and uh, tell us about that. Right. So the, you know, these communities have uh, over the years uh, cultivated local authorities. They have developed, uh, you know, friendly relations. They have bought influence. They have paid off politicians, judges, policemen, you name it, in order to maintain, uh, you know, a well-functioning machine. In, in, in communities like the tri-border, some of them even are rising up as local stars in local uh, politics, so they run for office. But all of that is not always enough to, to guarantee that the machine keeps, keeps moving. And so when, when their members get into trouble with the law and, and this enormous influence they've built over the decades is not enough, that's when the Lebanese or the Iranian governments step in. We've seen it in many other places. Uh, you know, last uh, uh, last summer we've seen the arrest of uh, Alex Saab, a Venezuelan Colombian businessman of Lebanese origin that is very much involved, uh, uh, according to a U.S. indictment, in helping the the, the Maduro regime. Uh, run uh, its illicit financial operation with Iran. He was arrested uh, in Cape Verde on his way um, while he was basically refueling on the ground. And there's been an enormous political pressure from Iran on Cape Verde authorities not to not to extradite him. We've seen uh, when uh, Qasem Tajuddin, the Lebanese businessman who was running uh, money laundering operations for Hezbollah in West Africa. He was arrested by the Moroccans in Rabat uh, while on transit. Again, diplomatic pressure uh, was brought to bear on the Moroccans to try and prevent his extradition to the state. So this is a model that we see pretty much everywhere and in the tri-border area as well. So when local authorities uh, at the behest of American investigators arrested a key money launderer in the tri-border in May 2018, immediately you saw that the Lebanese embassy in in Asuncion um, sprung into action. Now, an interesting detail uh, and aside, but I think it reveals a lot. The ambassador is is a member of a southern Lebanon Shia family clan and from a village specifically in the south where this family is very strong. And the family has an enormous amount of members in Paraguay. So he is actually a cousin of some of the businessmen that were using this uh, suspect for their money laundering activities. So how much of it was, you know, urged by uh, Gibran Basile in, uh, in, uh, in the foreign ministry in Lebanon, how much of it was spurred by family ties, how much of it was uh, done at the urging of Hezbollah, it's difficult to tell which is which. But what you can see is that it was a coordinated effort where the ambassador uh, publicly threatened the public, pro- the, 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 the government prosecution, uh, asking them, urging them not to extradite this person, where money offers were made to specific prosecutors where the lawyer for the suspect was likely paid from outside sources and where Hezbollah media in Arabic 
was repeating the same argument in defense of the suspect that you were reading on the Twitter feed of his lawyer in Paraguay. So clearly there was a, a coordinated effort because the exposure of this network, the arrest of this individual and the subsequent investigation potentially would expose um, significant criminal activities. And although the trial hasn't started yet, the court documents that are coming out are already showing that U.S. authorities consider this man at the center of one of, and I'm quoting from court documents, the largest drug trafficking money laundering networks in Latin America. So this is not a small operation, and that's why Hezbollah goes through embassies and diplomats and other means in order to thwart these investigations. Tom, do you have any further questions for Emmanuel? I just have one left, but I'll, I'll save it for last. You know, I was just wondering, you know, what what do you think? Um, I know it's impossible. I know the answer to this question is probably impossible to give me a precise answer. And so I, I'm going to do to you what I people always do to me. They ask me questions where the answer is not really fully uh, knowable. Um, but of all the drugs that come into the U.S., you know, what you know, what percentage would you say or what what's the size of forget about percentage? What's the size you think of Hezbollah's involvement in drugs that are flowing into the U.S. so Americans can understand sort of what what their role is in this in terms of the drug traffic coming into, you know, that's affecting American communities? You know, I don't have a, an exact figure and it's hard to tell, but I, I want to sort of make here two points here. First of all, in 2017, so at the beginning of the Trump administration, when the administration came out very strongly uh, uh, prioritizing the, the fight against opioids. And by the way, a lot of the opioids that wash up, uh, in, in the homes of Americans uh, and, and feed into our, our, our terrible addiction problem um, are not legal drugs over-prescribed. They're increasingly being produced by Mexican cartels and smuggled through across the border. Yeah, there's a whole, there's a whole uh, Chinese angle to that as well. There's a with, whole Chinese angle. And yeah. of course, when, when these drugs uh, um, are, are being produced without any regulatory supervision, they're mixed up with cocaine. They're mixed up with other uh, dangerous substances, which contribute to overdoses and, and, and deaths. But when that happened in 2017, actually the deaths by uh, from cocaine overdose in America were as high, if not higher than uh, opioids. And so there is a, an addiction problem that is very significant. Uh, still, it is a multi-billion dollar industry. And also, when you think about the fact that revenues or, or percentages of revenues from the sales and proceeds of cocaine go to finance weapons procurement for Hezbollah in Syria and elsewhere in the region, then sort of... You're anticipating my follow-on question, but go right, ahead. You can, yeah. Quantify, yeah. you can quantify how much each of our consumers are contributing to mayhem and death in the region, right? Because, you know, in, in Lebanon, you can buy uh, an AK-47 for, I think, uh, you know, a few hundred dollars. Now, a gram of cocaine on a street market price, I think, is still around 80 to $100 uh, in the U.S. today. So, you know, a, a, a Saturday night party in, in, uh, in an upscale um, apartment in some, in some, you know, 
well-to-do neighborhood of Miami, New York, uh, uh, or elsewhere, where cocaine is being used uh, for recreational purposes by the upper middle class and upper class, uh, that buys a weapon for a militia fighter, that party alone. So we are feeding into the violence and mayhem in the region, not to mention the fact that for every shipment of cocaine that reaches our markets, there is a trail of blood, death, violence, uh, and destruction of civil society throughout Central America as the drug makes its ways from the Andean Plateau to the Mexican border. And that is what I think Americans need to come to terms with. We are, with our consumption, we are feeding into the erosion of civil society, the corruption that feeds into the traffic, the violent deaths of thousands of people, the destruction of, of institutions, the corruption of uh, you know, uh, law enforcement and intelligence agencies across Central America, uh, the, the, the drafting of an entire generation of youth to the, to the drug trafficking business as opposed to constructive, uh, um, you know, lawful business activities and so on and so forth. The ripple effects of this are immense and some of it goes straight into the coffers of Hezbollah to continue to radicalize Lebanese youth in Lebanon and abroad, to continue to feed into conflict in the region, to fund uh, um, terror plots globally and so on. We're here with our uh, colleague, another FDD senior fellow, Emanuele Otolenghi, uh, who is, uh, he has a wealth of knowledge, if you've been listening, obviously, about Hezbollah and Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Uh, I don't know if you'll take this as a compliment, Emanuele, but I consider you a fellow nerd just listening to you again. Uh, you really know this stuff like the back of your hand. You know you know all sorts of uh, details, which is great. Um, you know, we have a few follow-up questions for you on this stuff just to sort of tie a bow on, on some of these topics, uh, not that any of them are very cheery. Um, so, you know, one of the arguments I've heard or seen made quite a few times is that, you know, basically Hezbollah won't commit a terrorist attack inside the U.S. or is hesitant to do so. And obviously they haven't had a hand in a direct attack, uh, you know, inside the U.S. Sort of, you know, we always think about Al-Qaeda and 9-11 and there's a whole, by the way, there's a whole Hezbollah-Iran story there in terms of shuttling the hijackers. But, um, you know, in terms of committing an attack inside the U.S., one of the arguments we see is that Hezbollah doesn't want to jeopardize these sort of very lucrative, profitable revenue streams that they're getting from the drug trade, from drug trafficking, and from these illicit procurement networks, that if they did do something big as sort of some retaliation against the U.S. or some sort of provocative act that would sort of bring all that into jeopardy. What do you think about all that? Do you think, could, could you see and imagine a world in which, you know, these networks which are delivering cocaine into the U.S. could also play a role in, uh, you know, sort of a direct terrorist attack? Or do you think that they, or do you buy the argument that they're so worried about losing the revenues and profits from this that they would be hesitant to do so? So, first of all, let me take you back to 2011 when the, uh, you know, we, we learned that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps uh, Cuts Force was plotting to blow up the then Saudi ambassador to Washington uh, at a very, upscale, well-known, popular Italian restaurant in Georgetown here in, in Washington, D.C. 
Now, had that plot panned out, not only would the Iranians have killed a, a Saudi diplomat in Washington, but they would have killed probably dozens of 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 uh, of, uh, of customers at the restaurant and in the vicinities in the process. And they were using a cutout for that, right? In terms of the cartels. Correct. So yeah. they. Yeah. So what's interesting about that story, and perhaps is 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 something that has not been highlighted enough. Uh, in the press coverage and subsequent, uh, you know, writings about the stories that the the uh, Iranian American who was involved in that plot and sort of putting together the pieces to organize the terror attack was a used car salesman uh, based in Texas who, when tasked with procuring explosives for the attack, went to the Zeta cartels. Now, why did he go to the Zeta cartels in Mexico of all of all people who could have helped him supply uh, the merchandise needed for the plot? Because the Zeta cartels had extensive contacts with Hezbollah. So Hezbollah very likely facilitated that connection. And, you know, Locke had it that he ended up uh, speaking with an informant uh, of U.S. authorities who then conveyed the, the details of the plot, and that's how it was thwarted. But clearly, there was no compunction there uh, about, uh, you know, causing, uh, you know, tr tremendous uh, uh, life, lo loss of life and damage in the heart of uh, our nation's capital um, by Hezbollah and Iran. Now, that's one thing. The second thing is that, of course, more recently, uh, U.S. authorities arrested um, two in, twice in 2017 and once in 2019 um, external security organization agents, Hezbollah ESO agents, in the United States. Yeah, we wrote about them at Long War Journal at the time. The plot was the plot. Their plotting was was. Uh revelatory in many ways. I mean, it, you know, just to give some background, uh, one of the guys uh, was basically living not far south from where I live, uh, not to give too much away. So it was, uh, and it's a neighborhood, in a neighborhood I know actually through family connections and, and otherwise. So it was a very interesting story to see that. Correct. And and when you read again, the sort of the indictments, the, the criminal complaints, the affidavits by the, the agents involved in the investigation, um, you know, you learn a lot of interesting things. One is that by design, not by chance, Hezbollah relied on Lebanese immigrants and waited to activate them until they obtained U.S. citizenship. So clearly they wanted these uh, agents to operate under the cover of a U.S. passport. One. Two, they tasked these agents with surveillance of multiple targets, including some in the United States, uh, federal buildings in Manhattan, JFK, yep. uh, also in Canada, uh, the Toronto International Airport. And three, in one of the three cases, one of the potential targets was actually in Central America. It was in Panama. Mm-hmm. The agent was tasked to identify and scout both the Israeli and the U.S. Embassy in Panama City and also to scout the canal, the canal yeah. and identify vulnerabilities of the canal. So imagine 
had that plot planned out, the 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 the, the huge impact, not just the loss of life, but the, the, the devastating impact on global commerce by blowing up the canal and making it unusable uh, for whatever time that would have been, the repercussions would have been immense. And it's clear because that case is, is kind of dormant in the docket uh, three years later, almost four years later. So presumably the case is still ongoing. Uh, the investigation is still ongoing. By the way, my, my sense from going through that, that case, the paperwork from that case was that there was a significant amount of compartmentalization uh, in the, in the in the planning and the plotting that basically the guys who were identified were mainly for surveillance and trying to lay the groundwork for something possible in the future um it was they were operating through the islamic jihad organization wing of hezbollah which of course is a name that caused some confusion in the 80s when the islamic jihad was used as a name claiming responsibility for attacks in lebanon and, you know there's still you can still see it in some of the reporting to this day where people are confused about what actually transpired in lebanon when people just can't come to terms with the fact it was hezbollah just as another name for that part of hezbollah's operations you know absolutely but when you sort of take that case and you look at the time frame of that of that case uh it fits into a more global pattern where sure. hezbollah was trying to plot attacks elsewhere we know from um, you know from investigations as well as uh, news coverage that uh, uh, MI5 in London raided a warehouse in October 2015 where they found large quantities of ammonium nitrate linked to Hezbollah. We know about the Cyprus case where eight tons of ammonium nitrate were stored in a warehouse by uh, a Hezbollah agent that was arrest who was arrested. The guy who went to Panama had that experience uh, of handling uh, ammonium nitrate. And again, so how do you procure those quantities of ammonium nitrate? You do so through legitimate or legitimate looking commercial businesses, import, export. Panama is an ideal place for that with the Cologne free trade zone. We know that Panama had a role in Hezbollah's money laundering operations um, from a variety of cases and sources. So. Clearly, uh, where while these plots didn't pan out and there hasn't been a terror attack, it's not for want of trying. They saw it fit to tap into these money laundering networks and the communities on the ground in order to provide the logistical supports for these agents as they were moving in and out of Central America to organize this major, major attack. And it's it's a blessing that it didn't happen. But clearly, if the order comes from Tehran to carry out such an attack, they will not hesitate to potentially expose and put in jeopardy some of these networks in order to fulfill the order. I got one more question as a New Yorker. I got this question for you. So years ago, uh, somebody who was in, I'll just say somebody who was in the security world, okay? was walking me down 6th Avenue and said to me, um, see that stand over there? I said, yeah. I said, that's a, that's a contraband stand that actually that's run by Hezbollah. That basically they're selling T-shirts and that sort of thing. And the money, we know even watching them, the, their money actually goes to Hezbollah. Um, have, have you come across, you know, we've been talking a lot about cocaine and the drug trafficking and that sort of thing. How about the other sort of businesses that Hezbollah deals in, other sources of contraband or illegal products that potentially are coming into the U.S. I, I have done no deep dive on this. I just have this one anecdote <laughs> from my 
my stroll through New York City, uh, Midtown, years ago. By the way, I don't think that stand is still there, and of course I didn't buy anything from it. Uh, but, uh, you know, if, if you come across any sort of other examples like that. Absolutely. I mean, a key component of this massive global uh, operation is, of course, uh, trade-based money laundering. Sort of the, the movement of value uh, linked to illicit proceeds from such activities as drug trafficking, uh, the movement of value through merchandise. So, by the way, some of the shirts, some of the Hezbollah shirts were kind of nice, actually, by the way, too, just, you know, you know, they were, <laughs> you know, they were cheap knockoffs as a New Yorker, you know, there are, there are good knockoffs and there are bad knockoffs. And I gotta say, you know, the Hezbollah guys, they had some pretty good knockoffs. So. Well, I, I actually have a funny anecdote to tell, uh, you know, on my, on my very first trip to Latin America, I, I spent a day uh, hopelessly looking for a store in a, in a heavily, um, Lebanese area of Sao Paulo in Brazil uh, for a Hezbollah t-shirt because one of my contacts there told me that you could buy it uh, uh, in, in local shops. So after failing to procure it, uh, I, I, I went back to my contact. I said, you know, I couldn't find it. So he made a commitment to me that if he could find it, he would buy it from me. So eventually, two, three years later, he came back to me and said, I, you know, I was visiting Bahia which is in the north, as far away as you can imagine from the hubs of known Hezbollah activity. And sure enough, he walked into a Lebanese pastry shop run by a, a Lebanese Christian and bought me for 30 reais, which is about you know uh, $6 at current exchange rate, um, a bright yellow t-shirt with a Hezbollah logo on it. And when, when he asked the lady why she was selling this stuff, she said, Hezbollah defends the Christians in Syria. Uh, that's why I like them. So, so that stuff is is out there. But but more more seriously, more importantly, um, because you want to, you know, when you move these merchandise, I see, you see T-shirts, mobile phones, uh, 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 PlayStation consoles, uh, cosmetics, you name it. For the drug trade. That is a brick of cocaine dollar equivalent, right? The, the fridge that shows up and is sold at a retail shop in a free trade zone is the brick, is the value of the cocaine brick sold in Europe, in the Middle East, uh, you know, as far as, as Australia. And so a huge component of the Hezbollah criminal operation is to run thousands of these small companies and shops across the world that trade in what look to us as benign, perfectly legitimate products, but they are really a disguise for moving money uh, tied to, to criminal proceeds. So up and down the Florida Peninsula, there are hundreds, if not thousands of companies that trade in electronics, mostly electronics, but also other products. I have found uh, ties uh, to Hezbollah money laundering operations as far as Texas, Nevada, California, um, obviously in Michigan, uh, there is a lot of activity there. Uh, and usually it is electronics, but it can be clothes, it can be cosmetics. I have found uh, a thriving trade of, of cosmetic products such as shampoo, conditioner, lip balm, 
Uh, lately, I'm seeing a lot of it's sort of like the, the list of Joker products from the original Batman there, you know, absolutely. You make, you make, you but I mean, together, the latest you know? thing I've seen just to go back to black cocaine, don't combine the lipsticks, don't combine <laughs> lipstick with the shampoo or something, you know, so. Well, I mean, there's a whole backstory as to why they're they're moving cosmetics, apparently, and I'm not going to go into the weeds too much. No, we're, but... we're going to have you we're going to have you back on the show because, you yeah. know, you, you just know so much about these topics. And I've got I just as I'm listening yeah. to you talk, I've got about 20 yeah. extra questions for you. Yeah. But, but when you come back on the show, you're going to have to wear the Hezbollah t-shirt when you come on. That's all I'm going to say. And say, I'll, I'll wave it. And, wave. I'll... and the other thing is, you know, I, I got to say this, Bill, you know, I'll, I'll let you, you have the one last question for him, Bill, as we close this up. But, you know, Hezbollah's got their merchandise going. We still haven't gotten ours out yet. So that's, again, it's sort of a the long yeah. word journal. I mean, you know, that's how pathetic we are at getting our stuff, you know, out there. You know, we can't even market ourselves at all. You know, Hezbollah's selling t-shirts in Latin America and we can't even, you know. Sell, uh, sell t-shirts here in America. I mean, I know. We are the epitome of fail. That's how we should see them. They're a global criminal brand. Yeah, I don't, we're not. We're not. We're definitely not a global brand, but we should be able to sell a couple of T-shirts. You know, so uh, I'll buy one when you're having them ready. Oh, you, you'll, you'll <laughs> no, get no, one for you get free. one for free. No worries. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> uh, I actually have two questions, but one of them is not very serious. Uh, so, uh, Al Mustafa International University was recently designated uh, by the U.S. Treasury Department uh, for its ties to the IRGC. Um, how do, how does the IRGC use Al Mustafa as part of its international operations, and how extensive, how many branches does, uh, or or in how many countries does Al Mustafa have uh, worldwide? So again, it's difficult to to pin down an exact number, but it's it's uh, you know they're active in in dozens of countries globally, and they have uh, hundreds of affiliates and and entities linked to them. They obviously disguise uh, the, the connection oftentimes, um, but you know I've I've seen them uh, in Latin America. They're they're present in almost every country, uh, if not all countries in Latin America. They're very active in in Africa. Uh, they have a presence in Europe. Uh, they're active in India. They're active. They have a, a, a huge campus in in Kabul in Afghanistan. They're active in Southeast Asia. They, they, and and what's interesting about Al Mustafa is that it is not just a, a school that trains foreign-born Shias. So they sort of they tap into the Shia diaspora all over the world and bring them in uh, to study uh, in Qom, but they very deliberately send out missionaries uh, on a global scale to convert people to Shia Islam and to bring them into the fold, to train them in, in Iran, and then to send them back to their, their uh, native countries to run the operations locally. So in Latin America, I, I, you know, I have a map of their activities in Brazil, where they're very active in Sao Paulo, in, in Rio, in Bahia, but also in smaller towns like Guarapawa, Punta Grossa, in the tri-border area itself. Um, they have a presence in, in Chile, where there's almost no Shia uh, Islam uh, to speak of. Have a presence in Argentina, obviously, which is where it all started. Rabbani, the, the man behind uh, the Amia bombing, started out as a missionary cleric to Argentina in the early 1980s. Um, they have a center in, in Quito, in Ecuador. They have a presence in, Boliv in Bolivia. In Colombia, and interestingly enough, even in Cuba, they have been allowed to to open up shops. So, it's a very, very widespread operation that includes not just mosques and cultural centers. 
They have publications in multiple languages. They have classes online. They have uh, website platforms uh, for media, for information, for education. They have radio stations uh, that they run uh, in, in multiple places. And again, by tapping into local converts who know the culture and the language best, they're able to amplify the message. Now, how do they interface with the IRGC and the, you know, broadly speaking, the Iranian uh, uh, regime apparatus? So we know from a handful of cases that the embassies actually act as conduits for recruitment uh, of these operations. There was a case in Mexico almost 10 years ago where a, a, a Mexican university student decided actually to infiltrate this operation and sort of managed to get himself into a group of Mexicans who were being sent over to Iran for classes. And afterwards he exposed the whole operation and clearly the, Mex the Iranian embassy in Mexico City was uh, played a critical role in the recruitment uh, operation in organizing the trip and sending the funds over to pay for the expenses. So that's one, one element where you see this interface. The second, of course, is that in some cases you've seen these networks or the clerics in the networks or the centers in the networks uh, contribute in whichever way to the uh, uh, organization of terrorist plots. I mean, the latest one was, of course, the failed terrorist attack against the, the Mujahideen al um, uh, rally in July 2018 in Paris. Now, we know, and that's been fairly well advertised, that Iranian diplomats were involved, implicated in that plot. But in October 2018, French authorities also raided an Islamic center linked to Iran in the north of France as part of that plot. So clearly, they have that, that role too. Uh, um, they, they act as a sounding board for the Iranian revolutionary message. They spread that message through their activity, through their missionary activity, through their charitable activity, through their educational activities. They send it out both to Shia communities and to potential converts. Uh, but they're also there, like everything else we've discussed on this program, um, as, uh, as a tool that can provide logistical uh, infrastructure support when the regime decides to to go out and engage in more nefarious activities than just spreading its revolutionary message. Billy, yeah, one more quick yeah, lighthearted quick, question. Yeah. yeah, this is lighthearted. Uh, so I'm a big fan of the uh, Narcos series on Netflix, Emmanuel. You you familiar with that? Anything? I have to confess, I am very squeamish about graphic violence on TV. You know, I don't go much beyond Walt Disney when it comes to uh, okay. to TV, but but I'm familiar with the series. Yeah, very, very fantastic. You think there's any chance we'll get a narcos uh, hezbollah in the future and if so would you be willing to to take a short role in that i think you'd be you're one of the best dressers <laughs> i know and uh i think you, you're, Netflix, you're very I kind think you'd, you'd you'd make you'd be making a good choice i gotta say you really do you do really do dress very sharply I mean, it's you know you're a very sharp dresser I, actually now you say that yeah you got nice uh cufflinks and you know cuff shirts and everything kind of kind of envious actually it's a good point, good point. I, I can i can think in in the in the broad pantheon of, of hollywood stars i can think of uh Better versions of me who could play uh, who could play that part. Uh, I, I obviously would be honored. Uh, um, you know, there's been a Netflix production about the tri-border, which was a bit of a flop with Ben Affleck. Um, and of course, if Ben Affleck, well, of course, that could be that could be, me, be Ben Affleck. I would be very delighted. Uh, <laughs> 
but but to, but more seriously there there is a growing interest in the documentary uh industry uh in looking at these stories uh and there are a number of productions uh that i have been consulting with to help them uh, put together uh, a package and and hopefully that'll that'll bring more attention to the story but i wouldn't rule it out that uh, eventually we will see also some fictional account if you think about it it's a great story uh, a story that lends itself to drama to action uh, uh, to uh, you know to to all sorts of, uh, of 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 interesting and entertaining angles and if if anything uh, um, if anything I, I would add uh, that the fact that uh, Netflix productions such as Ozark uh, have have garnered the, such success, and I'm a huge fan. Actually, if any one of you wants to watch it, of a of a Brazilian production called The Mechanism, which is about the it's a drama dramatization of the largest corruption and money laundering scandal that rocked Brazilian politics, Lava Jato. Mm. So, if these series do actually make a splash and get a lot of following and, and success. I think that a narco terrorism series about Hezbollah and the, and the cartels in Latin America would be a huge hit and it would help make the broader public understand actually how dangerous this convergence is. Well, uh, thank you again. We've been joined this week by our colleague, Emanuele Otolenghi. We again, we're going to pester him to be on the show again because there's a lot to talk about still. Um, we are going to release this episode, I think, probably the week of Christmas. So happy Hanukkah and Merry Christmas to everybody. Uh, we're going to be launching a Patreon page soon to get contributions. You can't buy any Hezbollah t-shirts, unfortunately, but hopefully eventually we'll be able to send some Longword Journal t-shirts and some other stuff your way. Um, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Emanuele, for joining the show. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. And happy holidays. And thank you to our listeners for listening to this week's episode of Generation Jihad. Please do subscribe to the show. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. By the way, I, don't, I still don't use Apple Podcasts or Spotify, Bill. I do watch stuff on YouTube. Uh, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. And we will see you again next week.